This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend After the Quake by Murakami Haruki. After the Quake represents the response of Murakami, one of Japan's best-known modern writers, to the 1995 Kobe earthquake, which not only devastated western Honshu, but seemed to reveal the growing impotence of a nation which was once destined to be number one. Like everything Murakami's ever written, it's great. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. of Japan podcast, episode 145, An Offer You Can't Refuse, part 2. So, to recap, after the Second World War, a combination of the opportunities presented by post-war depression and then revival, the American move away from the left and towards the Japanese right, and the continuing rightist contacts of the Yakuza allowed Japan's criminal syndicates to bounce back from their suppression at the hands of the wartime military government. But that's not the end of the story. What do the modern Yakuza look like? Well, the answer is a complicated one in part because there are many different Yakuza families. Not as many as there once were, though, because one of the biggest features of the post-war Yakuza has also been consolidation. Partially, that consolidation was the result of government pressure. Japan does have anti-racketeering and anti-organized crime laws on the books. However, it also has anti-monopoly and anti-cartelization laws on the books, and as we've seen when we've looked at Japan's economic history, those don't really do much. The trick to getting around the law in Japan, and I suspect in many other places, though my experience as a criminal kingpin is somewhat limited is not so much to prevent laws from being passed, but to prevent them from being enforced, or to have them enforced only on your enemies. Japan's anti-organized crime laws, for example, have been enforced primarily on the smaller Yakuza syndicates, not the big boys. Larger families have clout with politicians or the cash to just outright bribe people to ensure that they remain above the law. Smaller families do not, so they're the ones who tend to get busted when local prosecutors need to prove that they are tough on crime. This has had the subsidiary effect of making the Yakuza very much a phenomenon of a few very large gangs rather than a galaxy of smaller ones. For example, according to some very rough estimates by Japan's National Police Agency, Between the 1970s and 1990s, Japan's two largest Yakuza families, the Kobe-based Yamaguchi Gumi and the Tokyo-based Sumiyoshi Kai, went from accounting for around 40% of Japan's Yakuza to somewhere around 80. That effort at consolidation, though, was also partially a conscious choice on the part of Yakuza leadership. Here we have to return to someone we talked a bit about last week, 
one of Japan's most nefarious criminals, Kodama Yoshio. Kodama, remember, was an ultra-rightist who sold drugs for the Japanese in China and who was indicted but not tried for war crimes. After being let out by the occupation government, he actually ended up working very closely with the CIA as an anti-communist operative. Kodama, for good or ill, really was a man of conviction. He genuinely believed in the sacred mission of the Japanese right wing to protect the essence of the Japanese nation, and believed the Yakuza had a real role in that. So, for example, when Tokyo was rocked by protests in 1960, led by student activists and directed against the renewal of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, another man who had spent the war in China and had been indicted but not tried for war crimes found himself in a tight spot, Prime Minister Kishinobusuke. So, Kishi turned to his former prison mate, Kodama, who, among other things, organized a legion of 15,000 Yakuza to protect the planned motorcade for President Dwight Eisenhower, when he was slated to come to the signing ceremony for the alliance, though Eisenhower ended up canceling the appearance because of the intensity of the protests. After 1960, Kodama used his influence in the Yakuza world to back a unified project known as the Zen Nippon Aikok Shadantai Kaigi, or All Japan Council of Patriotic Organizations, usually abbreviated as Zen Aikai. This was not a solely Yakuza-run organization. Other rightist groups, as well as rightist intellectuals, did sign up. Nor was it solely Kodama's baby. He was one of many leaders. Still, Kodama's fellows were in many ways just as terrifying as he was. Sitting with him on the board of directors, for example, was Amano Tatsuo, who had been involved in a foiled ultra-rightist coup in 1933, as well as Tachibana Kosaburo, who had likewise planned to assassinate Japan's sitting prime minister in 1931, but had been caught. Acting as Kodama's right-hand man on the Zenai Kai was one Sagoya Tomeo, who had been implicated, but not prosecuted for, the 1930 assassination of Prime Minister Hamaguchi Osachi. The Zen Aikai's pastimes included attempts to break up organized militant labor, and in one case, Zen Aikai strikebreakers were called in to deal with a group of steelworkers in Chiba. They ended up ending the strike and hospitalizing around 680 of the workers. The pre-war alliance between the hard right and the Yakuza was alive and well. But it was not just the hard right that was in bed with the Yakuza. The center right, which ran Japan for so many decades, also had some strong mob connections. Why that would be the case turns out to be relatively easy to answer. As a centrally run hierarchical organization, a Yakuza family is pretty good at organizing votes. That's especially true in the countryside, where for a long time social services were pretty limited. The Yakuza stepped in to fill the gap. Then, of course, there are the old pastimes which have tied together organized crime and politics. Bribery, extortion, that kind of thing. The upshot of it all is that for a long time, the center-right Liberal Democratic Party, which governed post-war Japan, was home to some politicians deeply in bed with the Yakuza. Perhaps one of the most illustrative anecdotes I could find 
took place in the late 1970s during the tenure of Prime Minister Ohira Masayoshi, an ally of former Prime Minister Tanaka Kakue about whom we will be absolutely speaking more. Officers from the National Police Agency raided the home of a senior Yamaguchi Gumi leader looking for drugs. What they found instead was a massive photo portrait of the gang leader whose house they were raiding having drinks with Prime Minister Ohira. Needless to say, the police packed it in and went home. A few years before this happened, in 1971, a senior boss for the Yamaguchi Gumi was brought in by cops on suspicion of murder. However, he did not spend long in jail. The police were stunned when two men walked in to guarantee bail for the boss. One was the education minister, Nakamura Umekichi. The other was the former prime minister, Kishi Nobusuke. But that's hardly surprising. Kishi had been imprisoned by the Americans right alongside Kodama, and the two men knew each other. Kishi had very impressive underworld contacts, in point of fact. And before anyone asks, by the way, no, I do not know if those contacts passed on to Kishi's grandson, the sitting prime minister, Abe Shinzo. Another LDP politician, Kaifu Toshiki, had a commemorative stone made and a photograph taken to mark his 1984 meeting with a senior Yakuza leader. Five years later, Kaifu would become prime minister. In 2000, Prime Minister Mori Yoshihiro was accused of being married to the mob because of his role in a 1996 wedding ceremony for the son of a Yakuza boss. Mori had attended along with five other politicians and had personally served as the nakodo, a go-between for the bride and the groom, a fairly major role in a Japanese wedding ceremony. Now, it's not just LDP politicians with connections to the Yakuza. In 1990, Ochi Keigo, head of the Japan Democratic Socialist Party, was caught on camera visiting the home of a Yakuza boss from the Inagawa Kai, the third biggest crime family in Japan. He went during an election season, and even though the building was clearly marked as a Yakuza office, the family insignia were in fact marked on the doors, Ochi maintained that he thought he was visiting the president of a small company. Ochi, by the way, refused to resign, and continued to have a political career up until his death in 2016. Of course, the most egregious example of political corruption was the Lockheed scandal of the 1970s. We've talked about this a bit before, but to refresh your memory, in 1975, Senator Frank Church of the United States opened up an inquiry into American intelligence work abroad that quickly turned into a discussion of the seedier aspects of U.S. foreign relations. Among the revelations, that Lockheed Corporation, a major U.S. defense contractor, had, with the knowledge and assistance of the CIA, been bribing leaders in, among other places, Japan, to promote sales of its civilian and military aircraft. This had been going on since at least 1958, and of course, when Lockheed had asked the CIA for a trusted contact in Japan, they went with the known commodity. They recommended their old agent, the ultra-rightist Yakuza, Kodama Yoshio. Kodama used his political contacts to facilitate Lockheed sales, very often by charging substantial commissions to Lockheed on a per-craft-sold basis, and then using those commissions to bribe key politicians. 
Among those bribed in the early 1970s when Lockheed was trying to sell a civilian jet airliner to the two national Japanese airlines, All Nippon Airways and Japan Airlines, was the sitting Prime Minister, none other than our old friend Tanaka Kakue. Tanaka and Kodama quickly developed a good working relationship lubricated by a substantial amount of money going from Kodama's hands to Tanaka's. Though, of course, the money was not a bribe, it was a gift to show appreciation. This gets at the heart of one of the most persistent issues when dealing with the question of Yakuza and official corruption. Gift-giving, as anyone who has been there will tell you, is extremely pervasive in Japan. Mid-year, New Year's, birthday gifts, anniversary gifts, the obligation to give as part of a social relationship is very strong, and there isn't really a good way to refuse a gift without deeply insulting someone. Now, the letter of the law is that any public servant can't take money from anybody for any reason, but who is going to quote the letter of the law when offered such a profound token of appreciation and respect, and when the alternative is horribly insulting someone whose help you might need later? This was always Tanaka's defense of himself that the rules of the game in Japan involved this notion of gift-giving, and that's all he was ever involved in, giving and receiving gifts. So that's corruption in the government, but what about the police? Why do they tolerate this? Japan's national police force is one of the most professional and highly regarded police agencies on the planet, and they've done a remarkable job of keeping Japan practically crime-free throughout most of the post-war period. They are respected professionals, so why do they put up with the Yakuza? Well, it's partially what we hinted at last time. To quote the late, great Sir Terry Pratchett, if there's going to be crime, at least let it be organized. The common perception is that Yakuza crime is generally victimless and always low visibility. Racketeering, drug sales, prostitution, all things that are less headline-grabbing than, say, muggings or murder or assault. If we accept that, short of some kind of minority report-style psychic police work, we're never going to get rid of crime, isn't it better to have crimes that are low visibility and criminals who do not get out of hand? When journalist David Kaplan was doing interviews in Japan for his book on the Yakuza, the remarks he got from one Tokyo businessman summed up the whole issue rather well. Quote, If you destroyed the Yakuza, where would all the criminals go? However, the problem is a bit more insidious than an acceptance that crime can't be eliminated so it should just be contained. For a long time, the relationship between the post-war police and the Yakuza was very close. Partially, that was an outgrowth of politics. The Yakuza, as we've noted, have a long history with Japan's hard right, and the police tended to be relatively rightist as well. For a long time, for example, any affiliation with the Socialist Party, or, God forbid, anarchists or communists, would bar you from a police career in Japan. Yakuza and cops tended to come from similar class backgrounds as well. They generally had high school educations and came from conservative working-class families. So a bit of an affinity was not unnatural. Then, of course, there were substantial gifts to show appreciation. Smart Yakuza bosses were careful to build good working relationships with local police officers, 
predicated on the idea that the Yakuza would keep crime invisible and the police would pretend not to notice it. The direct relationship between cops and Yakuza was, in many cases, extremely cordial. Here is a direct quote from the former, now-deceased boss of the Inagawakai, Japan's third-largest Yakuza family, Inagawa Kakuji. Quote, We believe in the Japanese police. If they say that the Inagawa gang is bad, then it is so. I don't want to say this, but they are a very capable lot. It is their duty to watch me. I respect them. Please convey my best regards to them. End quote. And by the way, he's talking to a journalist there. That's where the convey my best regards come from. Meanwhile, in the words of a senior narcotics officer after a couple of drinks, who wisely chose to remain anonymous, quote, To understand the heart of the Japanese people, you must understand the Yakuza and their notion of chivalry. Not all Yakuza are bad. I have friends who are Yakuza, poor Yakuza, and they are honorable, chivalrous people. They show the true spirit of the Japanese people. End quote. If this all seems a bit strange to you, and it might, keep in mind that while this is all going on, police officers are also watching Yakuza leaders get bailed out of jail by senior politicians, or having their photos taken with the Prime Minister, what have you. It's hard to blame the cops for cutting deal with the Yakuza when the people who are supposed to be running Japan are as well. The whole upshot of the arrangement is that for a long time, there have been cops in Japan willing to cut deals with the Yakuza. Maybe word of a planned raid gets leaked out ahead of time, and in exchange if the Yakuza feel compelled to rough someone up or even kill them, one of their number will immediately turn himself in so that the police are not forced to go through the trouble of a high-visibility manhunt. The Yakuza are allowed their low-visibility crimes, the police are allowed to keep up a truly excellent-looking set of crime statistics, and everybody, except the victims, is happy. To my mind, the strangest aspect of the whole thing is actually the careful consideration shown by the Yakuza for the image of the police. The last thing Yakuza groups with ties to the cops want is for cops to look bad. That might trigger awkward inquiries and the replacement of, shall we say, pliant personnel with more stringent men and women. So the Yakuza do their best to make sure the cops always come out looking good. For example, let's say that word of a raid on the headquarters of a certain gang got leaked to the Yakuza. Well, the gang involved would be sure to leave behind a bit of contraband for the police to seize and parade around after the raid as proof of the effectiveness of the police force. In one particularly amusing case, a policeman who tipped off a Yakuza group to an incoming raid then provided them with handguns from the evidence locker. The Yakuza could then plant the handguns in the raid location so the cops could re-seize those guns as proof of the effectiveness of the Japanese police in getting weapons off the street. Would have worked great, too, except that before turning the pistols over, said cop forgot to wipe their serial numbers from the evidence log. Then, of course, there's the public at large. Why do they put up with Japan's organized crime rings? Well, partially it's an issue of how socially embedded these groups are. In some cases, the Yakuza can serve very necessary legal functions. For example, the Japanese legal system is very bare-bones due to a legal cap on the number of licensed attorneys allowed in the country. 
So in the 1990s, for example, there was one lawyer in Japan for every 8,500 people compared to one for every 400 in the United States. And while that's a great setup for a joke about the difference between lawyers and people, I think the more important takeaway is how are people resolving their issues without recourse to the courts? The answer is a highly specialized type of Yakuza service, mediators. Say you live in an apartment with a noisy karaoke club beneath you, and the club violates noise ordinances which prevent you from getting enough sleep. In the U.S., you'd file a noise complaint with the cops. In Japan, you phone up your local Yakuza, who then politely invite the club owner to sit down in a meeting where you can all talk things out and come to a mutually agreeable conclusion. We think of Japan as this very smooth-functioning society with little in the way of social tension or friction. Partially that is a result of social norms and practices, which smooth out the rough spots, but it's also a result of behind-the-scenes operators like the Yakuza who can operate informally to keep things harmonious on the surface. After all, if you lived next door to our example apartment dweller from a moment ago, it would just seem to you like things just worked themselves out, right? Probably no better example of skillful Yakuza social propaganda exists than the 1995 Hanshin earthquake, which hit the city of Kobe in particular quite hard. The Yamaguchi Gumi, Japan's largest Yakuza syndicate, is based in Kobe and managed to hugely embarrass the government of sitting Prime Minister Murayama Tomiichi by beating government rescue forces to the scene. The Yamaguchi Gumi even rolled out a few helicopters to drop off relief supplies and airlift the injured to hospitals. Yakuza groups did the same thing after the 2011 earthquake. So really, how bad can these people be? Well, pretty bad. After all, all those relief supplies and the helicopters were paid for by extorted money. But hey, in terms of PR, it looks great. In addition to their established social role, the Yakuza have something else up their sleeve that helps protect their image, their very own movie genre. The Yakuza movie is a true feature of post-war Japan. Toei Studios, Japan's largest film company, has quite literally released hundreds of the damn things. If you're wondering why you've never seen one released abroad in the U.S., for example, after all, samurai movies are popular if niche abroad, so why not Yakuza ones? It is because they are the most painfully formulaic things imaginable. Basically, there are only two plot structures. The movie will open with our honorable Yakuza main character, recently released from prison, where he valiantly volunteered to go for the sake of the gang, usually to spare them a police investigation. However, he will return to a world changed. Either the new Oyabun, boss, is corrupt and has strayed from the chivalrous path of the Yakuza, or the old Oyabun was tragically murdered by his enemies. Either way, our hero will go on a one-man sword-based rampage, and it usually is swords, to tie in that nice traditional element, and because guns are for criminals, swords are for honorable heroes. Ultimately, there will be a climactic scene where our hero will face off against the leader of the evil Yakuza, usually in a burning building or something like that for dramatic effect, and defeat him before dying himself from his wounds or fire or whatever to add a nice element of pathos for the noble and the fallen. 
these highly formulaic plots, so note, for example, that civilians are never shown dying in these movies as a result of fighting, only Yakuza, did not detract from their popularity. Nor did the fact that, as Yomiuri Shinbun reporter Jake Adelstein points out, many of the film companies that made those movies had Yakuza ties, or even Yakuza advisors on set giving advice on how to realistically depict the Yakuza. The movie genre did start to lose steam in the 1990s, as the repetitive plots became tiresome and they were forced to compete with high-budget special effects films from Hollywood. Still, the Yakuza movie genre was instrumental in propagating a certain stereotype of organized crime in Japan. These contacts with politicians, with the police, and with ordinary citizens go a long way to explaining why the modern Yakuza have been able to endure the way they have in a supposedly modernized democratic state. They are an institution. And sometimes that term institution is quite literal. Again, Yakuza groups have massive headquarters buildings that are not secret. Gang emblems are all over them. The massive Kobe-based Yamaguchi Gumi headquarters publishes a newsletter including biographies of prominent leaders, discussions of gang initiatives, and even poetry by senior members. I believe other gangs do as well. The Yamaguchi Gumi newsletter is just the best known. Now, this level of acceptance has begun to change in recent decades. Partially, that's a result of an uptick in gang-related violence. For example, after the death of the prolific godfather of the Yamaguchi Gumi, Taoka Kazuo, in 1981, his syndicate briefly broke apart into warring factions. Despite the best efforts of his widow, Tanaka Fumiko, who temporarily ran her husband's syndicate after his death, and who organized a massive funeral attended by, among others, Takakura Ken, one of Japan's best-known actors, two syndicate bosses ended up warring for control of the Yamaguchi Gumi. By the way, if you haven't heard of Takakura Ken, he's like the 1980s equivalent of Brad Pitt or something in Japan. Taoka Kazuo both helped further Takakura's career and coached him for one of his best-known roles. Takakura played Taoka Kazuo in a trilogy of films about the boss's life. So, imagine, say, George Clooney or Brad Pitt doing that and developing a public friendship with a mob boss as a result. Now, the Yamaguchi Gumi Civil War was problematic not just for its destructiveness. In the course of four years, a nigh-unheard-of 220 gun battles took place between two sides in a country where gun violence is pretty rare, but also because the whole episode has a hugely embarrassing coda. One of the factions involved in the war sent a delegation to Hawaii in 1985 to buy weapons from a local gang. Those weapons included five military-grade rifles, a hundred handguns, and, not kidding about this, three rocket launchers. To pay for their new toys, the Yakuza offered 52 pounds of amphetamines and 12 pounds of heroin, together valued at 56 million United States dollars. Unfortunately for them, the local gangsters in Hawaii turned out to be FBI agents from the organized crime division. All of the Yakuza were arrested, but were eventually found innocent at trial. In a totally bizarre twist, the defense successfully argued that the Japanese word hai, which traditionally is translated as yes, 
can also be translated as, and this is true, I understand what you are saying. Thus, when the Yakuza said hi to the deal, they were not actually agreeing to it, just saying that they understood the hypothetical terms of this massive guns-for-drugs trade. Of course, why you would be hypothetically inquiring about a massive arms-for-drugs deal was beyond the scope of the investigation. After all, everybody needs a hobby. Even with the not-guilty verdict, the trial was a huge embarrassment for the Japanese, as their organized crime problem was now on very public display in the U.S. Only a few years after that, another unpopular Yakuza practice started to come into the limelight, the so-called Sokaya Yakuza. In Japanese, a Sokai is a general meeting of stockholders for a company. Sokaya are mobsters who use these meetings as venues for a very particular type of extortion. They dig up dirt on the company, buy some shares, and then threaten to harass executives with the dirt they've dug up unless paid hush money. Basically, Sokaya deliberately embarrass companies at their own stockholder meetings unless paid off. If there's nothing to use for blackmail, Sokaya will just try to act crazy and break up the meeting spray-painting people, lighting fires, and in one case, throwing a whiskey bottle at the CEO. This practice grew to tremendous heights during the boom years of the 1980s. Corporations, afraid of losing public face by being confronted like this, generally paid up. However, as Japan's economy became more closely bound to that of the West, and as in particular foreign firms started to operate in Japan, the practice of Sokaya has become something of a popular embarrassment. Finally, it's becoming increasingly obvious that, whatever protests to the contrary, Yakuza have never been more involved in the drug trade than they are now. Now, drugs are a tricky subject. The Yakuza have been involved in selling them for the whole post-war period, but there is a strong current of public opinion against them. Larger syndicates have generally only been peripherally involved in the trade, or left it to their small-time brethren. Some, like Taoka Kazuo's Yamaguchi Gumi, even sponsored anti-drug initiatives. However, the modern Yakuza have no such qualms. Remember, shortly after Taoka died, the Yamaguchi Gumi broke apart, and gang members offered to sell drugs abroad in the pounds. And 12 of those pounds, by the way, were heroin, which cannot be grown in Japan. That indicates something else, that the Yakuza are increasingly plugged into not only Japan's drug trade, but the global one. That heroin, for example, is generally coming through crime syndicates connected to the triads in China, which are then using the Yakuza as distributors. Because despite what you may have seen in the movies, Yakuza don't spend that much time fighting mobsters or triad members or whatever. There's no percentage in that. Cooperation is what pays dividends. This phenomenon, too, has proven embarrassing for Japan, as Yakuza activity in other countries has drawn a harsh spotlight onto the enduring issue of Yakuza activity in Japan itself. All of this means that in recent years, the Japanese public has become a lot less tolerant of the Yakuza. New anti-Yakuza laws have been passed, crackdowns have been stepped up, and a new generation of cops trained to see the Yakuza not as opposite numbers but adversaries has come into the force. Meanwhile, cooperation with international enforcement, particularly Interpol and the FBI, has been stepped up. 
How effective this will all be is, of course, an open question. When I lived in Hakodate back in 2009, I recall attending a local festival, the Ika Odori, or Squid Festival. Doing a goofy little squid dance right next to the local ballroom dancing club in the youth kendo team was an impressive group of middle-aged men with very nice Irizumi tattoos. They stood, or danced, not separate from the community, but very much a part of it. Will Japan ever be rid of the Yakuza? That's going to involve some pretty unpleasant scrutiny of some of the darker aspects of modern Japanese society. It's possible, yes. Whether it will happen? Well, we'll see. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. To find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for the first part of a short multi-parter on the rise of the samurai. Thank you.